This is the L2 Capital Podcast with Hedge Fund Manager Marcelo Lopez. The L2 Capital Podcast focuses on potential opportunities in the market and brings to your industry leaders and an intelligent conversation about their respective areas of expertise. And now, here's your host, Marcelo Lopez. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the L2 Capital Podcast. I have the pleasure to talk today to Alex Molineau, an experienced natural resources financier and executive. Alex, welcome to this program. It's a great pleasure to have you here and talk to you again. Hi, Marcelo. Thank you. Um, we are going to be talking about uranium, and there are not many funds at the moment that are focusing on this commodity. Everyone has a hedge fund background, but you, you're the only one with actual management experience, and that's unique. Now, based on your experience as CEO of an uranium company, is there anything you see different from what other investors see? Uh, thanks, Marcelo. Yes, I, I think that um, uranium is, is a very complex sector in terms of the various production processes used. I mean, we have underground conventional uranium mines, we have open pit uranium mines, we have in situ recovery processes. So in that regard, it sort of has a little bit more variety in the nature of the way the material is produced compared to other metals. So I think that's one thing where, where my background gives me a little bit more of a technical understanding of the different processes these businesses are using. Uh, another thing is obviously permitting and jurisdictional risk. You know, uranium assets, producing uranium assets are in Africa, America, Canada, Australia. So, you know, Russia, Kazakhstan. So there's a, if you've worked in the industry for some time, there's a, you build up a knowledge base of the different permitting regimes and, uh, you know, the jurisdiction jurisdictional issues in, in the main uranium producing jurisdictions. And I think that really helps analyze investment opportunities in uranium. Great. Because uh, can you tell us a little bit about your background, Alex? Because I found it fascinating. Yes. Yeah, so I, um, I worked as a specialist mining investment banker for about 10 years. And, and in that job, I worked in uh, Melbourne, Beijing, Hong Kong, London for banks like UBS and Citigroup. And then uh, for at least the last 10 years, I've been involved in uh, public company positions as a board of director positions or, um, or executive roles as well. I, I worked for Ivanhoe Mines Groups, uh, you know, one of the most successful entrepreneur-led uh, businesses in the in the mining industry. And specifically on uranium, I started making personal investments in uranium by privately buying uranium in uh, 2012. And uh, the, the main group of those investments are, are now uh, within um, Toronto Lucid Company called the Zaga Uranium. And I also, for my sins and my knowledge of uranium and public company experience, ended up becoming the CEO of Paladin Energy for about uh, three years uh, from 2015 until uh, middle of last year. And uh, that role was Paladin was going through a, a restructure. It had uh, uh, around about 800 million US dollars worth of liabilities and a market cap of about 150 million. So the creditors and a couple of the large shareholders had asked me to um, help that company through its restructure phase so that it could um, be restructured and be a sustainable business for uh, the next uranium cycle. So I did that. And then now, of course, I've teamed up with Ocklaner Asset Management of Singapore for the Uranium Fund. So Uranium 
Titanium has been a part of my life uh, for eight, nine years now. Brilliant. So what do you look for when buying uranium companies? And I'm not asking you to say which stocks you have bought or, or which stocks you like. Just what you think are the most important issues when looking at this space? Is it management, experience, resources, metallurgy, location? I mean, what's really important to you? Yeah, so I mean, firstly is I'm very driven by the IRR potential of uh, the underlying assets and the margin potential at reasonable uranium prices. So when we're looking at investing, uh, say, in the Oklahoma AM uranium opportunity, we believe that a normalized price range for uranium would be $45 to $65 a pound. Uh, we do believe there's potential for overshoot on the upside as well, given the, the current industry dynamic. But um, we're looking for assets that will, uh, assuming uranium enters that normalized range, will be going through the development process, will be, if they're pre-development assets or if existingly built assets, they'll have potential for a solid margin at those levels. So overall, I mean, that, that's how you qualify to be considered an asset that we want to include in the portfolio. And then beyond that, uh, we sort of look at uh, what are the broader sector trends going going on as well and, and the sort of the geopolitical issues and, and the, the regulatory issues and, and, and sort of country risk and things like that. Awesome. And uh, bears say that uh, there's a lot of inventory around and that's why the price of uranium does not go up. Do you agree with them? There has been a lot of inventory around. Now, there's there are very different kinds of inventory so firstly, there's government inventory. Uh, uranium is the best source of energy for a government to hold in a strategic stockpile because per unit of weight or uh, unit of uh, size measurement, it's the most energy dense you know, of any of the sources of energy generation. So if you're, if you're China and you want a strategic government inventory of energy, then it's uh, much easier to, to store that in the form of uranium than it is to store it in the form of coal, for example, or natural gas. But so the government inventory have been sort of a little more stable. There's been some reduction in government inventories in countries like the US, for example, but countries like China have been growing their inventory. So firstly, dealing with the government inventories, some people will say to me, for example, well, China's got, oh, well, actually in 2015, people were saying to me, oh, China's got uh, 14 years of their total annual uranium consumption held in inventories. And uh, at the time, well, that means China doesn't need to buy more uranium. But the simple fact is, is that China at the time had a policy of holding seven years of total uranium consumption in strategic inventories. And so because of the growth of their nuclear inventory, they're basically just at around seven years now. And if China is to maintain a seven year inventory, they could buy another 100 million pounds just to add to inventory in the next five years to match the growth in their underlying nuclear business. Again, on government inventories, I see. Uh, so India, for example, has publicly stated that uh, they could see an inventory of up to around 200 million pounds as a strategic inventory. And they've put the infrastructure, they're starting to put the infrastructure in place to purchase first 50 million pounds of inventory. So we could see that buying over the next few years. And countries that are new to the nuclear industry, like Turkey, Saudi, UAE, you know, these countries will presumably 
build strategic inventories as well at a government level. So so I think firstly, is on the government side, I think there's, there's a lot of potential net buying on the inventory side, which is being ignored by the market. I don't see that in anybody's demand uh, assumption. So then we talk about utility inventories. Now, utility inventories were overbuilt. In the 10 years leading to Fukushima, the utilities bought on average uh, 20, 20 million pounds or so more material than they consumed. So they bought, when I say they bought it, they either bought it physical or they, or I'm saying the net difference between new new contract commitments for forward purchases versus those rolling off. So they added around $200 million to the combination of their, their physical inventories and their uh, contract positions. And that's the that's been the main reason why the market for uranium has suffered so deeply in the negative following Fukushima and uh, has um, had its downturn extend for such a long time. It's not just been that the Japanese have stopped you know, buying additional uranium whilst their uh, reactors suspended. It's been that North American European utilities have been releasing these inventory and forward contracting positions that they built up at a time when they were a bit more worried about market tightness. So, so Fukushima was like a, a pin that deflated the concerns of extreme market tightness and the utilities moved from a inventory build position to an inventory release position. Now, over the last five years, the utilities have on board around 40 million pounds less in new contracts and in spot purchases than they have assumed in their underlying uranium demand. So so we're sort of getting towards the end of that in-build that happened uh, prior to, to Fukushima. And I'm, I'm giving you high-level numbers here, but when we when, when we look at our detailed demand supply analysis, uh, we basically think that if the, the, the utilities inventory positions right now are back towards long-term average levels. And if they continue to buy 40 million pounds less than they consume, they'll be they'll be basically at zero discretionary inventory uh, by 2022. So uh, that's why we, we sort of see an inflection point for uranium coming, could be now or it could be sometime over the next two to three years. Interesting, which is pretty much when most of the contracts, uh, the long-term contracts uh, are, are come to an end, right? You, you can look at these these curves of contracts rolling off and you can see that, that utilities go from being majority term covered right now to being uh, vastly majority uncovered in terms of term contract by 2021. So uh, by the way, I, I'm not sure how accurate that data is either because that data reported by people like UXC and Trade Tech and they form that data by when producers and utilities enter into contracts they report they report the terms of those contracts confidentially to UXC and Trade Tech and those parties aggregate those um, to build those items but when contracts are renegotiated or they're terminated or they drop off for various reasons. Uh, I'm not sure that that, that gets uh, very well updated and reported to trade tech. And there have been, you know, I, I mean, when I worked at Paladin, I saw evidence uh, both uh, within the activities that were happening for us at Paladin, but also, uh, you know, within what Cameco was saying about certain contracts and whatnot. So that there are a number of long-term contracts that have sort of been cancelled or been, uh, there, there's been negotiated exits of those contracts. Uh, and I'm not sure that, so we'll say, for example, um, you know, Paladin had a a long-term uh, contract with EDF for delivery from 2019 to 
2024. And, you know, that, that that was a very, very large contract by overall global standards. That contract was terminated through palliative structure. Now, now I'm not sure that UXC and Tradex numbers, you know, take into account very well um, those kind of happenings. So in my feel, I don't know, because obviously impossible for me to recon- reconcile the data, but my feeling is that they even overstate the contract coverage utilities. Oh, that's a very, very uh, interesting comment, uh, Alex. Thanks for that. So uh, why aren't utilities buying at these levels? Uh, do you think it's because they believe there's a lot of inventory around or because they're not seeing the writing on the wall or they got accustomed to see prices falling in Kazakhstan will always be there for them? Do, do you think it is because of political risks, Section 232, or maybe all of the above? Well, so, so the first thing is you need to understand why utilities build contract positions or inventory positions. Um, utilities don't buy and sell uranium based on the price of of uranium. Uh, you know, if, if you work for a sort of $30 billion utility, it might have a gas and coal business or this, that and the other. And um, they don't really have someone sitting uh, trying to make a profit on trading uranium. It's uh, simply an input to their business. Now, generally, when you have a, a multi-billion dollar business, you generally are trying to uh, reduce the amount of working capital that you employ in your business because that increases your uh, re- total return on on capital. So your general attitude here is it's just like for the same reason why a car maker doesn't hold loads of inventory car parts and the car maker doesn't sit there and say, oh, bumpers are really cheap this year. I'll buy enough bumpers to last me about three or four years. They keep their, their inventory on a just-in-time basis because they're trying to reduce their working capital. Okay. So in your general mindset is always that the utility wants to hold as little working capital as possible. So therefore, they want as little uranium as possible, just like they want as little gases in inventory as possible or coal in as possible. Now, the reason why you do build an inventory in uranium is because the main cost of power generation is depreciation, not fuel. And if you're worried about supply shocks and you run out of your uranium, then, and, and, and you know, for some reason you can't generate the way you want and sell that power to the grid, then your depreciating charge over the power that you can sell is going to go up quite a lot more than the cost of fuel. So uranium is like insurance. So if someone, if I said to you today, I've got 50% off price deal to let a teenager be insured to drive your car, you might turn around and say, I don't have teenage children. So it doesn't matter how cheap that insurance is. I'm not going to buy it because I don't need it. Now, when your child turns 16 and they get their learner's license, you're going to go to the insurance company and pay whatever you want, whatever they ask for the car insurance because, because you you have a real risk of them ca- causing some issue for you that, that that you need the insurance coverage for. That is how utilities buy uranium. So initially, when they were adding to their inventory and contract positions before Fukushima, it was because of that concern. It was because in 2003-2004, the knowledge became much clearer in the world about the absolute scale of China's ambitions in the nuclear industry. And so people started to think, oh, wow, China's going to end up buying all the uranium and uh, there's not going to be enough left for us. Then in 2006 and seven, you had the only major new mine development in the industry for decades, Cigar Lake, fail in its construction phase with the flooding. And the confluence of these events all the way through that decade leading up to Shima is what led utilities to add to inventory initially, then add more, add more, add more. And then it was Fukushima that changed the dynamic. Now, every year since Fukushima, they've sat back and let their inventories 
run off. And in a way, even though I say they don't buy based on price, every year they've been right, the price has broadly gone down or, or stayed low. So now utilities also receive a lot of information, um, you know, from, you know, that they attend these into forums, which are very utility weighted, like WNFC or World Nuclear Association. The information coming from Trade Tech and UXC, you know, the majority of their subscribers are utilities. And so, you know, for some extent, I, I think some of their information is a bit imperfect in the way it analyzes the mining industry. So I think the utilities kind of have been living... And, Initially, they were sort of right to do it, but but subsequently, you can sort of say that they've been living in a bubble where this feeling of no need to to, to sort of protect your uranium inventory position has been the right call, and uh, it's kind of become a, a built-in philosophy for the utilities. And at some point, it will change, and it could change quite quite dramatically, and, and they'll all come into the market. But you know, as, as I said previously, the mindset needs to change by 2022. Otherwise, they're at zero discretionary inventory, and you've got a mining inventory industry just not producing enough uranium. But uh, it's a sentiment-based thing, and it's also based on the information. The, these people are receiving and exchanging with each other. So, and things like uh, Section Two Three Two investigation may have kind of held up attitudes. While whilst the US utilities think about what's what's happening for them and what regulations are going to be imposed on them for their purchasing. So, I, I think that it changes soon, but it's, it's going to be based on when the sentiment changes for uh, the utilities. Awesome. Now, that was a great analogy. Uh, I like that, Alex. And do you pay attention to the price of uh, SWs? separative work units and, and what's the importance of it yeah so so i think the separative work unit price is kind of like canary in the coal mine in the uranium industry one of the additional sources of supply during the downturn was enrichment underfeeding and, that, and that's when it became more profitable for enrichers to basically to continue to recover the isotopes of, of interest from feedstock uranium and their capacity wasn't being fully utilized and that was reflected by the low value of SWU. You know, during last year, the price of SW started to come up and uh, that was a key sign that there was more demand capacity. And that's super important for the spot price of uranium oxide because when the enrichers incentivize sell SWs and utilize their capacity more fully, then they will reduce their underfeeding. In my view, the the long-term sort of market normal uranium oxide equivalent pounds that come from underfeeding is about uh, 7 million pounds a year. And during the downturn, it, it grew to about uh, 14 million pounds. So that's that's another little swing factor in the industry where at the time when utilities do start buying more uranium and all the other elements of the nuclear fuel cycle, including SWUs, there will be less supply of uranium oxide equivalent pound uh, as that enrichment supply gets taken up. So it's it's one of those that has accentuated the downside for uranium, but then it's one of those things that potentially accentuates the upside and can quickly create a tighter market at the uranium oxide level than previously uh, envisaged. Sure, sure. And uh, you you uh, mentioned spot prices. Uh, and uh, term contract is the norm in the sector. But since Fukushima, spot prices have increased in importance. Do you think it is a trend or as soon as some instabilities get cleared away, the market will get back to focusing on, on term contracts? And, and, and if you believe spot prices are here to stay, what's the impact you expect on uranium prices? Okay, so if we look back over the last 20-year average, 70% of the uranium has been transacted on 
term contracts versus uh, versus spot, and people will say that that term's incredibly important. Um, now, the one thing I will I will tell you though is the market ha- has been evolving quite a bit, and uh, you know when I see sort of uranium prices or whatnot, say I'll oh, look ignore spot. Uh, the long term reference price is the most important price. I'll tell you that that is a not someone with detailed understanding of the actual industry. Over the last number of years, even term contract whereby you know they'll be for a long term number of years and have uh, a certain number of volume, a certain amount of volume set aside. Uh, most of those, or a great deal of those, have become increasingly having their pricing mechanism reference spots. So there's a lot of contracts out there that uh, there'll be a term contract, but they won't be referenced to the long term reference price of the day they're in. They might have a floor and a ceiling and a spot price, or they might just be a, a long term volume contract that's just linked to spot price marking uh, mechanism. Or, for example, a, a contract that that was sort of quite popular with US utilities over the last few years been one where uh, the price of delivery is 0.5 times the term reference price of the day the original contract was signed, but 0.5 times the spot of the day. So if we can say that 70% of the industry historically has been contracting on long-term contracts, that may be correct historically, but but not all of those contracts are for all of their volume to the term reference, the long-term reference price. You know, and I think spot today is already the um, most important price. The, the dynamics in the market of this that are causing this change, number one is China is the largest marginal buyer of material. Chinese standard enterprises tend to like to buy on known volume, but they tend not to take pricing. So they, they tend to want contracts that have uh, the delivery price, the spot price of the day. And we can see that when China became the biggest buyer of iron ore globally, coal globally, those markets came spot price markets as opposed to term price, fixed delivery price markets. And the Chinese influence in the uranium market has already been that. They have, uh, you know, their, their offtake with Paladin is a, is a spot link, fixed volume offtake for the life of mine. Their offtakes, Kazakhs are general spot link. So that that's the first thing, the Chinese. The second thing is, is that the market itself is also shifting more from even a term volume market, spot volume market. And, and part of the reason is the regulatory volatility that we're facing in the nuclear industry. It used to be that, you know, uh, nuclear industry regulations didn't change much. And so if you were planning your business as a utility, you'd be quite happy to uh, agree today to a 10-year contract, take or pay volume for uranium. Whereas now, uh, Tsushima, you've had, look at France, for example, you've had three different presidents since Fukushima, uh, and they've been pro-nuclear, anti-nuclear, and kind of somewhere in between. So if you're EDF today, how do you commit to sort of a 10 to 15 year book of fixed deliveries? You're likely to shorten your book. So I'm not saying that uh, the, the nature of contracting is going away. Because of the nuclear fuel cycle, uh, it is a commodity that's more likely to have contracts. But the average tenor of the contract is shortening. It's moving from, uh, so, so there's a lot more medium term activity and there's a lot more spot activity as a weight of, and also when we look at the long-term contracts, they're more generally weighted towards spot pricing. So spot is absolutely the most important reference price for uranium, and it's becoming more and more important, and I believe will continue to be more liquid moving forward. And, uh, and you know, we're going through the same transition that the coal and iron ore markets have been through in the past. So what's going to happen to spot price? To have a long-term sustainable industry, 
uh, we need the spot price to be in a normalized zone. And that's that zone of, uh, you know, 45 to, to 65 US dollars a pound. At the bottom end of that zone, um, you really can just bring back some care and maintenance capacity and, and only some of the very, very highest quality project in the world could deliver. At the top end of the zone, the industry uh, can grow a bit and growth required in our cause of the underlying demand, the underlying consumption uh, based on the growth in the nuclear power industry. So uh, we actually have a mining industry that probably will do about 140 million pounds of uranium this year. And around 2022, it, it sort of needs to do around 200 million pounds of uranium. And only really 25 or 30 of that will come from reopening of care and maintenance supply and the rest needs to be greenfield growth. So so at some point over the next few years, uranium needs to, to trade in the in the higher end of, of the normal of what we call at OAM the uh, the normalized zone. Sure. And and do you think there's a magic number that will get uh, everyone excited about the sector again, like the thirty dollar per pound barrier? And if prices rise above it, do you think there can be a spike, or there are many traders that bought uranium in the low twenties that would be willing to sell? Yeah. Look. Look. Uh, I think from an investment sense, I think something like thirty uh, dollars is a bit of a cycle barrier uh, that uranium so far, you know, has failed to, to move through. And I think so for, for uranium equities, I think that's a psychological barrier that could get people to see that uranium is moving back into the normalized zone. I think um, in terms of what happens, you know, our normalized zone is based on a theoretical analysis of demand and supply. Now, uh, if you tell me as a former miner that $65 a pound will have 200 million pounds a year of uranium production by 2022, as a miner, I'll tell you, well, that's just because of the time it takes to uh, restart care and maintenance assets or develop new assets. It's just uh, particularly in an industry which is very boutique within the global mining. It's very hard to get expertise. Uh, a lot of the real experts in uranium are in their 60s, 70s and, and, and 80s today. And, uh, you know, there's, there, there's there's a much smaller group of active people to, to sort of come in and, and help you develop and, and restart mines. I, I think, for example, that, that this is one of the one of the misunderstood points. People say, well, well how long is it going to take you to restart a mine like MacArthur River, for example? Uh, my guess would be that would be uh, from the point that the Cameco board would decide to initiate a restart activity my view is that's going to be 18 months. Just the time it takes to bring back the management team, uh, fill the positions where employees have gone and found jobs elsewhere, uh, renegotiate deals with key suppliers and have them brought back on, you know, do any kind of capex that was left unattended during the rundown that that sort of should probably be done before you, you restart, build your work in progress inventory. So, and then Greenfield's mines, I mean, if they're fully permitted, fully engineered and ready to go, uh, they're really still going to take, you know, three years plus. And most fields mines in the potential sphere of growth in in uranium are not permitted yet either. So so I just it's impossible. The uranium mining industry produces 200 million pounds in 2022. So I think here the utilities have already left their buying too late, and they just they just haven't quite you now the penny hasn't quite fully dropped yet. Uh, and I will have a overshoot. And and what what's the upside number? I don't know. It depends on how extreme the the deficits become. 
and also as we know you know mines mines that are being restarted or built they they often have all kinds of issues uh that happen during those phases and and so you know that the potential for, for any kind of operating issue with a major operating mine or a mine being restarted or or developed during that period causing a, a, a sort of a supply shock is there as well sure yeah i, I always tell people when when you're going to uh, refurbish your apartment or house you estimate you're going to spend a hundred and it would take uh, three months and you end up spending 300 and it takes exactly. up to almost a year so a mine is way more complex so exactly you, you should you should account for that alex uh, is there a risk that kazaton prom ramps up production at around the 30 dollar level or will they wait for a, for a higher price to do so because uh, if you look at their numbers they don't look like that good right i mean uh borrowing is increasing cash position is decreasing and uh, and they say their costs are way lower than the average uh, so, so two more questions on that. Uh, one, do you believe their numbers? And second, do you think uh, the most important thing to look at in Kazaton Prom is the currency? So uh, when we struck our portfolio for OAM Uranium Opportunity, we have heavy weight towards uh, Kazaton Prom. So probably our two biggest themes in the fund are Section 232 outcomes, and we have a heavy weighting to uh, US uranium uh, producers and potential producers. And then we, we, we sort of have Kazatomprom as a head. And of the large-scale uranium players, that's the main opportunity that we really prefer right now. We prefer Kazatomprom to Cameco, and we've constructed the our invest exposure reflect that. Now, when we analyze... Now, Kazatomprom is the lowest-cost major producer regardless. But when we analyze the numbers, you know, we, we sort of feel like... Uh, we look very closely at the CapEx, and we sort of feel like... Like that it could be that some of their well-filled development capex is being accounted for as project development capex where it should really be considered a sustaining capex. So we do think that, so when we analyse their numbers, we would have a higher AISC, all in sustaining cash costs, included capital, than, than the brokers would have. Um, but we still still see Kazatomprom as a um, cash positive at $30 a pound, but not to the extent that they would, you know, at, at, at current cost levels be incentivized to not meet their market discipline targets and, and to sort of ramp up production. So that brings current. We watch very closely. We, you know, we sort of look at it every day because the, the thing that could change that is if there was some currency shock for the Kazakh Tengi. In 2015, the Kazakh Tengi was around uh, $180, $180 to the US dollar. And uh, the Kazakh Tengi was was pegged uh, at the to the US dollar at that level. And it was de-pegged and it immediately went went to about $300, sorry, 300 tangy to the US dollar. And I believe that that one-off, you know, cost, when, when you think about the Uranium business being a US dollar business, I think in a way that that one-off event helped Kazatomprom continue to produce a little bit longer at higher levels than they may otherwise have done. And I believe that was a key event in pushing Uranium price below $20 a pound. In that year, by the way, uh, Kazatomprom released a lot of entry into the market as well. So they sold a lot more Uranium than they produced in that year. So not, not only were they sort of incentivized to continue to produce, but they sold a lot of inventory. And so, yeah, I, I very much believe that they can have that kind of influence on the uranium market. Now, we have no reason to believe the Tengi, you know, would have a shock depreciation, but it has been depreciating over the last 12 months and it's sort of at its record low 
right now. So at uh, at three eighty versus the US dollar, where the Tengi is today, I'm not I'm not worried about that. But you know, we just sort of continue to watch it closely. But but I, I think it's a good um, part of a Kazakhstan prom is a good feature of a balanced uranium portfolio because um, uh, if for some reason the uranium price takes longer to recover, you know, or doesn't sort of run as far or whatnot, it's probably likely that you know, or one of the more probable reasons is that that Kazakhstan has uh, resumed production growth or something of that nature. So kind of a, a balance, it's almost like a sort of a hedge within a balanced uranium portfolio. You know, in, in let's say if uranium prices cap out at forty-five or fifty dollars because uh, you know because Kazakhstan is producing more than we expect over the next few years, then uh, you've probably got a lot of performance in your Kazakhstan investment versus the rest of the portfolio as well. I see. Now, uh, you and I discussed this issue uh, a while ago, but I believe it can be a risk to the market that no one is paying attention to. Let's say the price of uranium does go up to a more sustainable level. You mentioned uh, $45 to $65 a pound. Um, at, at this point, we are going to see lots of projects taking off. And do you think the banks will be capable of analyzing any financing or they're going to have difficulties with it because they haven't done much over the past few years? Um, so, look, I think the banks have been financing uranium project historically for a long time. So I, I see this problem in some of the battery metals where, you know, where, where you, if you see, for example, the lithium space, it's not really a bank financeable to the same extent that, say, a copper or gold might be. You don't tend to see banks doing traditional project financing loans on development projects in, in the battery metal space. And that's because the banks don't have a long history of lending to those commodities and they find it hard to get comfortable with their outlooks price of them. You know, let's say it's not as easy to finance as copper and gold, but it's still financeable. So, you know, and I, as a banker, even in, you know, back in my previous career, I did uh, uranium financings for people like Energy Resources of Australia. And, uh, you know, we did finance for WMC Resources, whose, you know, whose Olympic dam mine was was heavily uh, uranium oriented. And so it's, it's sort of known to bankers. It just uh, requires them to have in house commodity price forecasts that, that they can understand and be comfortable with and be able to analyze the sector well. I think it's not a big prohibition to development of new uranium mines. It's just a bit, uh, you know, it's just not quite as easy as, say, copper or gold or, or something like that. Sure. Alex, uh, that was an awesome conversation. Once again, many thanks for coming to this program and sharing your insights with us. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks, Marcelo. I, I appreciate it. Thanks very much. It's always fun to talk about uranium. Uh, I, I look forward to, to seeing when you when you post the podcast. Thank you. Sure. And, and, and I'm happy to, to hear that you're fine after the, the earthquake there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Cheers. All right. Great. Bye-bye. Thanks, Marcelo. Thanks. Bye. If you like this podcast, feel free to forward it to your friends and colleagues. We appreciate your time, support and your feedback. You can follow Marcelo Lopez on Twitter at MALopez1975. The information presented here is not investment advice and should not be taken as such. You should do your own due diligence and consult with your financial advisor before doing anything suggested or mentioned in this podcast. L2 Capital and its partners will not be liable for any losses that occur in doing whatever is discussed in this podcast. 